Hello, everyone. Welcome to EMDR Chat with Kurt and Michelle. I'm Dr. Curtis Roundson. And I'm Dr. Michelle Gottlieb. And we have a guest today. And Michelle, today. tell the listeners, Hi. yeah, what are we doing today? Right? Well, we have a guest. I'm going to introduce her in just a second. But this is the reason we have a guest. We often have people ask us with different populations that people want to do with EMDR therapy. The, a question often comes up is, well, yeah, can I do EMDR therapy with this population or that population or this diagnosis? And you've heard us talk about addiction in different podcasts. And if you haven't, you can go back and listen to the addiction one or about working with PTSD or dissociation. Today, we're going to talk about uh, the neurodivergent community. And we have an expert as part of EMDR professional training, and her name is Candace Leininger. So, Candace, my question to you. First of all, welcome, Candace. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you do EMDR therapy with the neurodivergent community? Absolutely. And a good part of my practice has been providing EMDR therapy to neurodivergent clients. How long have you so, been involved doing that? Um, I, I think I've seen neurodivergence for the past 15 years, but really as far as specializing it in it, it, it really, um, because I am neurodivergent and I live in a neurodivergent family, my, my sensitivity to it is high. And I just found myself more and more finding those who are underdiagnosed or, or um, not diagnosed, overlooked in, in diagnosing because of their overshadowing diagnoses. So a lot of people who are neurodiverse uh, look depressed, look anxious, and they're, uh, they're, um, their neurodivergence gets overlooked and the trauma that sometimes goes along with it. So I would say in the past, um, since 2016, um, my practice has been very heavy uh, with neurodivergent clients. And before we really get into it, I think that it, even the term neuro, neuro, neurodivergence is a newer term. Can you just kind of give a a simple overarching definition um, of what neurodivergence actually means? Um, it is anybody who who has basically a, a different brain and and uh, really um, navigates this world a, a little differently than as we call it the neurotypical folks or the allistic uh, folks. So it, it could be autistic, um, ADHD, um, dyslexia, uh, and, and more and more uh, communities are um, joining and, and, and uh, falling under that umbrella. I think the, the diagnosis that are most talked about when you speak of neurodivergent uh, clients um, are autistic and attention deficit disorder type folks. And one of the things that I love about this change to neurodivergence is the idea, instead of there's something wrong with these people, of I mean, there's the, the, the reason they see us is the trauma of being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world, which can be difficult, and the way neurotypicals may treat them, but they don't necessarily have to change who they are. Right. And that that's called uh, being 
neurodivergent affirming. So if you are somebody who has that perspective you just shared, Michelle, it is uh, neurodivergent affirming. Um, neurodivergent folks don't need to be fixed. Um, they just need to be accepted, accommodated, and celebrated. Uh, but uh, we're getting there. Our, our, our society is getting there. Unfortunately, it is rare to find somebody who is neurodivergent who hasn't experienced some trauma, some bullying, some isolation in, in the neurotypical world. And that is what we focus on reprocessing, uh, along with sometimes uh, acquiring the, the neurodivergent diagnosis or um, awareness of that difference and processing through any disturbance that might be attached to that. Most people who get, and, and a lot of uh the DSM refers to level one autistic spectrum disorder. Uh, a lot of those folks don't, uh, either they self-diagnose or they acquire a diagnosis later in life in their 30s and 40s. And it's a relief to finally understand why they are different and to stop masking and, and pretending to be uh, someone they aren't. So that is also part of the process sometimes when working with a neurodivergent client. But a lot of people have been shamed and, and they've been forced to try to behave in ways that is like sandpaper on, on your skin. It, it's just uh, very adversive. And so our society is changing to, to perspectives, fortunately, from trying to fix neurodivergent people to trying to support accept, accommodate, and hopefully more and more in the future celebrate. And you mentioned Kurt, that they, many of them yeah. come in with uh, trauma-related issues uh, as a result of uh, just being, as you said, bullying and being treated differently. Now, from an EMDR reprocessing perspective, uh, what might we see with a neurodivergent client that we might not see with someone who is, what was the word you used? Neurotypical. Neurotypical. I, I think or, the first thing I think the first thing everybody should do, no matter if you suspect your client is neurodivergent or not, is uh, a sensory profile. And you can learn a lot uh, from people as far as uh, the environment that they're existing in and how you can make your office even more um, sensory. Uh, friendly to them. And the reason why I think that is so important is because if something in the environment that they have learned to try to ignore and tolerate is not addressed, then it's taking, I often refer to bandwidth, it's taking from their window of tolerance. And the more we can make our environment more user-friendly, uh, the more they're going to be able to reprocess and desensitize because it will help their window of tolerance. Can you give an example of that in an office, just for the yes. listeners? Yes, I I had a client, and she taught me a lot about being autistic. Um, and she needed, when she came in the office, if I hadn't tended to it already, she would pull my curtain, she'd turn off the overhead light, she'd turn the clock uh, face down because she says it would pull her attention. Uh, she would pull out of her backpack, and this was a 30-year-old woman, uh, an old uh, teddy bear that she liked to stim, just a, a repetitive kind of picking motion that would uh, was soothing to her and would, would also widen her window of tolerance. Um, I knew not to ever wear any perfume, have any candles lit, uh, any, any uh, type of... Um, 
fragrances would really uh, overstim her. And when she reprocessed with me, uh, she was encouraged to take on whatever comfortable uh, position. She at times was uh, laying upside down, hanging off my couch with the tappers mm. on either side of her temples. She sometimes tucked the tappers in her bra strap and stood up and kind of just uh, uh, rocked. I mean, she moved a lot, and and that's what was soothing to her, and we just made space for it. So empowering a client to make the environment user-friendly really is, I, I think, just a, a great way to respect them and, and their needs and also to make your, your processing more efficient and effective. Oh, and, and, and how that enhances rapport mm -hmm. by Absolutely. being able to do those things, yes. And so, you know, one of the things that I've seen when I've worked with the neurodivergent population is adaptations that, while I'm reprocessing the trauma of how they've been treated, like being bullied or whatever, but the adaptations that I might need to do in working with the population. And I was wondering if there was something you'd like to speak to about that. I think... As always with all our clients, every mind, body, and soul in front of us uh, needs what they need. And so it may be a lot of adaptations and it may be a few, but the, you know, I think we, we try to be the experts and we try to figure that out in isolation. And that is not very uh, efficient way to, to meet our clients' needs. Getting a, a lot of feedback, what's working, what's not. So if you, in every uh, phase seven closure with your clients, Talk about what worked for you this session. What didn't? What did you like? What, you know, what was pulling your attention that didn't need to be there? And really get get feedback. I also have noticed in reprocessing, it's not unusual with some neurodivergent folks to kind of get stuck because of the perseveration. The brain can just really take something, grab a hold of it, uh, as as you know what happens with hyperfocus. So you know. Sometimes you have to do that, um, well, what would happen next, just to help break that perseveration or even uh, get them up and, and moving to, to break that, that perseveration. But I also know I've used hyperfocuses as uh, resources. Uh, I've had neurodivergent folks that have not had nurturing parents, but they've been gamers and they've had, they've um, they have avatars that are healers. Um, I have uh, one client, um, she games a lot, and there's a white sage who is a healer. And that is who we would summon in in uh, the reparenting of self. That white sage would come in and take care of that, that inner child and nurture um, that inner child. So sometimes... Uh, their hyperfocus is a resource, and sometimes um, it, it can be a stuckness. You know, I really like what you said about uh, we often think we have to be the experts about everything and to really take a step back and say what works for you. I know with my neurodivergent folks, sometimes they've needed to stim during reprocessing, mm -hmm. and which, you know, if I didn't know anything about it, I'd be like, that's weird. Just put down your toy. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Right. And like I said, my client with her, her teddy bear, and she, you know, we had talked about she has always had an old kind of falling apart teddy bear that she would pick at. And she has been shamed about that. A 30-year-old woman with a, a, a 
old teddy bear, dilapidated teddy bear carrying around, is shamed in our society. And so that was something that would only be kept at home. And when I, I finally heard about this, when she finally shared it, I said, you know, please feel free, free to bring your teddy bear in. And it was it was such a relief to her for her to be able to not just stim during reprocessing, but to have her preferred means of stimming and to have that acceptance and accommodation with no judgment. So it's really multi-layered. And would you define what stimming is? Stimming is a repetitive motion that um, is soothing. And if you have that soothing going on, in, in EMDR terms, I believe it really helps broaden their window tolerance because when somebody can be at the optimal you know, place uh, and, and move into their disturbance, they have more room for it. So typically... People, uh, when they're children and, and they're stimming, uh, we, we kind of overlook it. As they move into adulthood, they really get shamed. And I've known, uh, I've known women who have bought puzzle rings that they can fidget with um, underneath their palms that nobody can see and ways to more socially acceptable stim so that they can tolerate their day at work and, and and be able to function within their window of tolerance. But often as you move into adulthood or, or you know, as kids get laughed at in school, it, it goes underground. And it, it really is a shame because if somebody is withholding from stimming to be more acceptable, then they are getting overstimulated by the things that they're usually stimming. And then it leads to um, usually uh, a meltdown or burnout, or as my one client says, I, I need to, um, it, it's, it's like my computer when it, it has shut down and rebooted, I'm going to have to shut down and reboot, mm -hmm. which also has another complexity for EMDR therapy, because if you're not familiar with the shutdown reboot process, uh, you might mistaken it as uh, dissociation. And mm -hmm. What you do for dissociation, which is kind of become more large in the room and engage more and, and try to ground, is actually then more overstimming to, uh, to somebody who is autistic and in that overload, that, that overstimulation process. So what we do to ground our clients will actually make the situation worse with somebody who is in that shutdown reboot process. And so if I'm so, hearing you right, when you're doing the reprocessing, if they happen to begin stimming during the reprocessing, that is kind of an inherent way for them to stay in their window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a way they yeah. self-regulate that unfortunately has often been judged and shamed. Right. And then how do we, in the middle of session, how do we distinguish if they're doing the shutdown reboot or if they're actually dissociating? Because neurodivergent folks can dissociate as well. How do we tell the difference? And, and that's a, that's a conversation we have in preparation, or we back up into it if it it you know becomes more. Um, there's some awareness around it as you move into phase four. Uh, I usually ask for what I guess would be most akin to to a stop signal, but it, and, instead it's um, we agree on a, a hand signal they can give me which signals they're getting overstimmed. Because a lot of people who get overstimmed actually become nonverbal. 
And that is is very common. And, uh, you know, my one client says, I just need to go into a room for a couple of days and not speak and have darkness. Um, that's what I need. And then I'll be OK. But that's not OK with everybody for me just to stop speaking for two days and go into a dark room where it's what her system needs. So that is something that um, you have conversations around. And just like dissociation, I love to get somebody's uh, uh, terms for their dissociation. Is it floaty? Is it is it fuzzy? Is it zoned out? Uh, the same goes for I want to understand what that process looks for them, what has helped, and how um, you know I'm going to get that message. Because they can communicate it to me, it, not always verbally, though. Hmm. Excellent. Now, Candace, you uh, are a warehouse and a wealth of information about this. Um, how are you going to uh, get this information out to the listeners, to other EMDR people? Have you had plans on doing that? Well, after years of consultees um, telling me I need to do an advanced training on this, I finally uh, found the time to do that. And, and I am launching in-person trainings, uh, both in-person and live virtual trainings uh, over the next few months. And it, it will also then be on demand. So that is something that will be out there because there is there are a few trainers um, starting to put some information out there, but there really isn't enough uh, people who specialize in this. So I have listened to my consultees and, and put together a one day training that has six hours of Emdria credits. So I'm really looking forward to, to starting uh, presenting that in the next couple months. Wonderful. And where, where might they find that? Uh, on emdrprofessionaltraining.com. And oh. I, am, I, I, I am launching that first in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I practiced for, for uh, quite some time. And then we are going to go on EMDR professional training uh, live virtual in September. Um, and then uh, it will uh, follow on demand. I've also been invited to present it in Phoenix, so I'm I'm going to see if I can squeeze that in this fall also. So, yeah, going to take the show on the road. That's great. And, Michelle, we, we kind of miss telling the listeners that Candace is one of our illustrious trainers in the MDR professional training also. Yes, and I, I have been honored to be a, a, a part of um, basic trainings for since the inception, either as a facilitator or trainer, but it, it is pretty exciting uh, to do my first advanced training, and especially on a topic that um, really needs attention. So um, I am actually going to be doing next year an advanced training on um, a narcissistic trauma, which a lot of uh, neurodiverse clients are victims of. Uh, they don't understand often the lying that can go on in society from the little white lies to, to more malicious and are often taken, taken advantage of by people who are um, narcissistic and can blame everything on them. And they believe it because from birth they've been told it's their fault and, and they're different. And so the narcissists kind of just hop on that. And often my, um, my neurodivergent, my autistic women especially, um, have been through a lot of um, relationships with very toxic narcissists. 
Candace, thank you so much for all that you said. It's been so informative. Uh, I know that, I mean, what little I've, no, what little I've known about working with neurodivergent, I've gotten from you. Um, and I here. did want to share that, as I said, Candace is our expert. She does have some workshops coming up that if you want to go to EMDR professional training that we've got, and they will become on demand. And because we want to thank all of you for joining us, um, there is a coupon that you can use, whether if you want to go to Neuro, uh, Candace's workshops or any workshop, it's EMDR chat 10. And we'll give you 10% off any coupon, EMDR chat 10. And thank you. Thank you, Candace. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Michelle and Kurt. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.